Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Bhaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Mark Triola, who's the Associate Dean for Educational Informatics at NYU Langone Health, where he is also the founding director of the Institute for Innovations in Medical Education. Dr. Triola's research focuses on the disruptive effects of the present revolution in medical education, driven by technological advances, big data, and learning analytics. He has worked to create a continuously learning medical education system that includes new ways to integrate electronic data into educational research. And as a side note, it's been almost a decade since I first met Dr. Triola at TEDMED 2012, uh, where he was demoing the Biodigital Human, which is a fantastic platform. And listeners of this podcast will know we had Frank Scully on a couple months back. Uh, and we also owe a lot to Dr. Trilla for first kind of setting up this Macy Foundation conference back in 2015, where our chief medical officer, Rishi Desai, and I started talking about the concept of him joining Osmosis, uh, because at the time he was at the Khan Academy. So Dr. Trilla, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really look forward to our conversation. So I know a lot about your background and how you got into medicine and the fact that you still encourage me to go back and finish med school, which is, which is very <laughs> likely. Uh, can you tell our audience a bit about your background and what got you interested in a career in medicine and then medical education? Sure, sure. Um, so I, uh, uh, I grew up in upstate New York. I, I'm the child of two teachers, so always a strong uh, presence of education in my family. And uh, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a marine biologist, actually, very focused on oceans and whales, and uh, ended up going to Johns Hopkins, which had a strong marine biology program. And as you can imagine, people who are interested in biology who go into Johns Hopkins tend to shift to a little bit more towards the human focus. And so I uh, went to Johns Hopkins, ended up becoming pre-med, came to NYU in 1994, and um, really came to a, a place that I found fascinating and, um, and exciting. Stayed at NYU for, for medical school, was very interested in internal medicine and hospital-based medicine. Stayed at NYU for my medicine residency. I did an extra year as a, as a chief resident. And during both medical school and residency, and we, we can talk about this more, I really saw that information technology, computing, analytics, data, they were going to change everything, maybe for the worse, maybe for the better, but they were going to change everything. So uh, I ended up doing a, an additional two-year medical informatics fellowship here in New York City and uh, have been back at NYU ever since as a faculty member, working with um, some very interesting people to try to transform medical education and really close the gap between the changes in our healthcare delivery system and, and the structure and function of our medical school. That's something that's always impressed me. I mean, ever since we've started interacting was uh, you not only have very interesting innovations and projects going on. I remember the pathology or histology viewer that you created, you and your team created adapting it from Google Maps API, uh, but then also like very interesting people. Um, so one of our first articles we ever published on Osmosis, I co-wrote with um, Jason Theobald, a student of yours and now a good friend of mine uh, who also went into emergency medicine. And I actually just saw him back in January. So it's great that you've been able to surround yourself with that. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, how the IIME came to fruition? Because I feel like that's your incubator of how you have all these great projects and people around you. Sure, sure. So the Institute for Innovations in Medical Education is an institute here at NYU Langone Health and, and at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. It is seven years old. 
And it really stands on the shoulders of giants. My mentor and advisor was a man named Marty Nakbar, who was a physician here. Uh, and he, believe it or not, he started the original grandparent of our group in 1987. He truly foresaw a future where computers were going to change the way we teach students, train residents, do research, and deliver care. And he developed a group called the Hippocrates Project at NYU School of Medicine in the late 80s, well before the internet, uh, and grew that group to essentially a software startup within our medical school. It was really quite remarkable. That's one of the things that really appealed to me about coming to medical school here was to get to work with him. And I ended up working with him um, over the summers and working in his laboratory. And he ended up really being my mentor for over 20 years until he passed away just a few years ago. His work and the, the group and the team that he created, which I was privileged and fortunate to take over, uh, started out as this sort of software startup model where we were trying to change how we do medical education bringing in data from our electronic health record, uh, using uh, new software, new applications, and new ways of, of doing things. And seven or eight years ago, we said, hey, if, if we think about the structure of this at NYU, and we think about it being an institute that can really look across the whole vertical of education from before our students get to us, the application process, all through medical school, residency match, through residency and training, and then into practice, that's what medical education is. It's not these artificial silos of med school, residency, practice, et cetera. If we could create this institute and think about that whole vertical as a continuum for each of our learners, develop new approaches that apply across it all, and really develop our faculty to teach in this world, we could change things. And that's where we've been for the past seven years, and that's what we've been swimming in. That's really impressive. So can you tell us a bit about kind of the size and scope of the Institute, as well as some of the projects that you're working on now and most excited about? It's a large group, um, considering that we're focused on education innovation. We have 28 faculty and staff who are within the Institute, really focused, as I said, on that whole vertical across medical education transformation at NYU Langone Health. And the kinds of things that this Institute uh, works on are to use data and analytics to transform what we teach and how we teach to maximize the success of our students and our, our residents and faculty to create this continuously learning healthcare system, something that we talked about, as you mentioned, in 2015 at that Macy Foundation. But really, how do we create a system that's constantly measuring itself and constantly trying to improve and knowing that we improve by continuous quality improvement loops? And very importantly, by trying to close the gap between what we teach our med students and our residents and what our hospitals and healthcare systems are doing. And the changing world of our hospitals and healthcare systems, the increasing pace of change, new technologies, digital health, telehealth and telemedicine, all of the changes this past year of COVID, those should be a clear clarion call to every medical school that we need to think about change. We need to keep the core of what we're doing and how we train students and house staff to be competent physicians, but definitely think about how we are also going to adapt to this rapidly evolving future. Absolutely. And I, again, that's, I think, one reason we even started talking in the first place was after TED Med, we had published a paper, what can medical education learn from Facebook and Netflix? And, you know, what type of big data analytics concepts could we borrow from those tech companies, uh, which obviously are no longer in favor uh, because of the social impact, 
that they've had since then and apply that to medical education. One of the most controversial aspects uh, around AI or informatics in medicine is what's the role of a clinician moving forward? And obviously, you know, you're more familiar than, than me probably about the debates that go on around that. We, we had Eric Topol on the podcast mm-hmm. a couple of months ago as well. Um, and he and people like Vinod Kosla have caused a lot of physicians to, to worry about what their role is. Like, is it going to be memorization, regurgitation anymore? Um, where do you stand here uh, as far as the positives and negatives on the rise of big data analytics, both in medicine and healthcare, as well as medical education? Uh, I am an optimist. This is not going to diminish or replace physicians. Quite the opposite. These tools are going to give each physician superpowers. And it's these superpowers, the ones that most of us think we have now, but in reality, um, we're limited by a lot of our ability to manage lots of information, our cognitive biases, and, and other things. Right now, we're really good at collecting a lot of digital data about ourselves, about our patients, our communities, our country as a whole. And we're not very good at using those data to make decisions, to transform the way we do things, um, and to transform care. And what we need is a new member of the healthcare team who's gonna help us do that. And it's not gonna be a human, it's gonna be an AI member of the healthcare team and their job is to give us superpowers. Those superpowers are gonna be the ability to see patterns, to know what to ignore and know what to look at, to be able to make the right decision for the right patient in front of you. All things that we wanna do all things that many of us think we can do, but in reality, we really can't because of human limitations. And these are things that the AI person on our healthcare team is going to help us do. And I absolutely do think we should move away from rote memorization and regurgitation. That's what the AI is great at. And that's what we have definite human limits around. But all of the aspects of healthcare that are unique that are core to our identity, the intimacy of that relationship between a physician and a patient, not only should that not be sacrificed in this world, this should never become transactional, um, but these superpowers should hopefully move some of the rote stuff off of our plate, freeing up more time for us to spend with patients, making our decision-making more efficient, our ability to review data more efficient. So I am very, very optimistic about this. What's really interesting about this future, though, is is that in healthcare, for the most part, a lot of these advances have been physician-facing, hospital-facing, clinic-facing. And this brave new world is not limited to just the ivory tower and us. Patients themselves will have access to all of these tools, too. And this is fantastic and exciting. And this is some of the democratization that Topol and others have talked about. And I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. But managing this world of truly activated and educated patients, and we're not there yet, we've got a long way to go, but we're going to get there, is going to pose some new challenges for physicians as well. And so I think that for what we as medical schools need to think about is when our graduates are in the peak of practice 10 or 15 years from now, what's that world going to look like? And what can we do now to begin equipping them for a world that has AI as a core part of it. We've already got almost 30 FDA approved AI tools and diagnostics out there in use. 10 years from now, that number will probably be 300 plus. And how to know when to use them appropriately, when to deviate from them, uh, when they should increase the space between 
our data and ourselves and when they should bring us much closer to our patients. So I think that's a big frontier and future for what we need to teach stu uh, students to be prepared for. That's really well articulated. And we normally ask this question at the end of the interview, but since you're talking about what the next 10 to 15 years may hold, you know, what advice do you give your students, uh, people like Jason, who you've mentored over the years, uh, about approaching their careers in medicine today? Well, so first of all, I, I mean, it's wonderful to see that more and more students are applying to medical school than ever before. And especially having gone through a year where healthcare and health systems have been the primary thing that have been the, the pillar of, of keeping us going. And eventually rational scientific thought and scientific decisions really ruling the day. It's just thrilling to me that that has inspired so many young people to want to take this route and take this path. I would say that the emergence of technology, the digital health, telehealth, telemedicine, data and analytics, AI and machine learning are opening up much, much more flexibility and opportunity in people's future practices and their future lives. So, so for example, you know, if you go to medical school now, and telehealth and telemedicine may not have been even mentioned during uh, many people's medical school or residency training. And during COVID, maybe it was 50 or 100% of practice. And we'll go back to normal. It won't be that much, but it'll still be a big component for people. That's a seismic shift in the way that you're interacting with your patients, the way that you're spending your day. So I think that flexibility, the diversity and the eclectic nature of what digital startups, telehealth and telemedicine, new models of care uh, will pose means that people are going to have, young people in particular, are going to have many, many more options within specialties and fields to pursue these. I would say that increasingly, healthcare, for better or for worse, will be um, delivered through and interpreted through IT systems, electronic health records. Time and motion studies now show us that interns spend 55% of their time doing information management through the EHR and 13% of their time at bedside. Wow. That, that doesn't sound right, but maybe that is a great way to deliver care because the EHR is such an important uh, mediator. It can help us make good decisions. But regardless, this information management is going to be the single largest task that anyone in medical school or residency right now will be doing. And so navigating that with fluidity and skill, understanding how to harness these systems um, to the betterment of your workflow and the care that you deliver and for the experience of your patients, those are going to be really key. The software will get better, the, the experience will get better, and the tools will give them superpowers. The key will be how well can people adapt to that and redefine their professional identity to get maximal use of all of those things. Yeah, that's again, really well said with, with regards to flexibility and, you know, career paths are very winding as, as, as both you and I have experienced and, and being able to have a prepared mind and take those chances that could lead to great innovations as well. So we're, we're really proud to be partners with NYU for a number of reasons. Um, NYU has been kind of at the forefront of a lot of innovations. Your work with the American Medical Association on uh, accelerating change in medical education, a three-year medical school consortium. One other thing I'll mention is the, through the gift of Ken Langone and others affiliated with NYU, the fact that you were, I think, one of the first, if not the first major uh, medical school to provide free tuition. This was before COVID. And now I feel like the public would very much support 
you know, whatever we could do to make sure our future healthcare professionals aren't saddled with $200,000 of debt when they graduate. What are you most excited about as far as the long-term changes that COVID will bring to medical education? And is there anything else that really excites you that NYU is doing outside of your institute or, or even within? Well, so first of all, I think this is truly an inflection point, but let me say clearly, this was too high a price to have paid to get these changes. Um, this was a, a national disaster and it uh, certainly highlighted a lot of gap areas. So I, I certainly wish we could have gotten so much of this disruptive change some other way. That being said, what an amazing time for medical education. I've said here often that COVID is the antidote to Flexner, that this is the first time since 1910 where things that were immovable objects or unstoppable forces have changed. If you look at step one moving to pass fail, the elimination of step two CS as, as an exam, the virtual interviews for residencies and medical schools, which happened with, with ubiquity this past year, all of those things were really unchanged for decades and changed overnight, just like telehealth and telemedicine changed overnight. So I think that, that COVID has really forced a lot of people many of whom had a lot of momentum and weren't interested in, in change. Many of people were really waiting for this opportunity for change to say, what can we do differently? What should we do differently? And lots of exciting changes happened. Uh, every medical school reinvented itself in one way or another. Every residency program reconfigured itself. Systems thinking became commonplace as people tried to figure out how to adapt and, and how to manage change on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it highlighted the need for teaching and training around informatics, epidemiology, health system science, and, and many other things. I think what's next and what I'm most excited about is okay, we're post, well, we will be post-pandemic. We will have learned all these lessons. And now we'll have the luxury of choice where we can say, what do we want to go back to? What, what do we want to keep from the rich and storied past of medical education in, in the United States? And what did we throw out the window during COVID and switch to virtual, hybrid, new? And think about what this post-pandemic curriculum looks like what post-pandemic residency training looks like. Obviously, you mentioned the three-year pathway, um, which really is a proxy for multiple pathways here at NYU. And the concept that we can um, begin to comfortably move away from one-size-fits-all education, which was largely the Flexnerian model, if every physician gets X and Y training, then we can reassure the American public that they all have a minimal level of competence. Well, now we have much better ways of measuring that competence and we're not ever gonna sacrifice that, but we can use that breathing room to provide different pathways for our students, some of which are accelerated, some of which are decelerated because they want to learn more, get dual degrees, do research, et cetera. The cost of medical education is a huge burden to families. And unfortunately and tragically, sometimes influences people's specialty choices because um, they are um, thinking about revenue and, and paying back loans and, and debt. And so the move here to go to free tuition, which, as you said, really did take a tremendous philanthropic effort. And so one that is not lightly replicated across all 160 medical schools in the country, but it's one that we are, are quite proud of because it really does uncouple the resources for paying for medical school and going to medical school and um, making your choices about the future. 
I would say being the director of, of an institute that focuses on, in particular, on informatics, analytics, and technology medical education, I am excited that this past year has led to a huge increase in the use of, of online and computer-instructed learning. Most of it was replicating classroom instruction in small groups online, but now still we have an army of faculty and learners who are comfortable in this. We're doing this on Zoom right now, right? Everybody in the country is comfortable in this. And so what does that mean for medical school and to a lesser extent residency, but, but also residency training as well? We don't need to be in the same time in the same place. Um, and, and I think that, that this disruptive change is leading to an open-mindedness. And so I'm really excited to see all the experiments across the country of what it will look like once we have this luxury of choice where we're not forced into a situation by quarantine or a pandemic, but we can look back and say, geez, that really worked maybe better than the way we did it before. Let's keep that. Or, you know, no, we need to bring the students, we need to have them um, together. We need to develop a community, which was hard to do for many medical schools over the past year. So I'm very excited about that. Totally. I think this would be like hopefully a very resilient class of learners and faculty as well as, I mean, not just in health professional programs, but colleges, high schools, middle schools and elementary schools of people who just became more flexible and hopefully that flexibility uh, and roll with the punches attitude will continue well after COVID has been uh, contained. Um, I know we're coming up in time, so I did want to give you the opportunity to answer a question of basically, you know, what have I not asked you that you would love our audience to, to know about? So this is a shameless plug for you and osmosis. Um, but one project that we have worked on with you guys, um, which I think is a compelling one, has been the use of electronic health record data to trigger educational resources for medical students. I think that this is one that is of tremendous value. There is so much in the electronic health record about what our students and our residents are doing, what patients they're caring for, procedures, diagnoses, conditions, treatments, diagnostic tests, it's all there. And rarely are we able to tap into that and use that. It's a goldmine that could inform in a very adaptive way what our students are seeing and not seeing and therefore guide their education. So a project that we've worked on with Osmosis has been to, to create a system where each night our systems within our firewall, we don't share this data out to you at Osmosis, um, we look in EPIC, our electronic health record, at which patients are our students admitted the day before. What were those diagnoses? And we've mapped those ICD-10 codes to internal medicine competencies, which then are mapped to osmosis videos. And so each morning, the day after they admit that patient, before rounds, our students get a push notification from the osmosis app or an email from, from osmosis saying, hey, you just admitted a patient yesterday with congestive heart failure. Here's the clinical reasoning video on CHF diagnostics. Or if they've already seen that one, here's, here's the clinical reasoning video on CHF therapeutics. I think that this is an important example for, for a couple of reasons. One, certainly in the context of COVID, medical schools are going beyond their borders for content. They're looking at companies like yours and many others and articles and journals and a med ed portal from the AAMC. And it's really becoming this big ecosystem of content. And two, we should leverage this environmental and context data of our learners in the electronic health record, in the teams that they're on, in the concepts that they're learning about in their basic science courses, to leverage that environmental context to automatically trigger content assessments. No human intervention needed, 
this I think has great potential to create an adaptive learning system. So it's been a, it's been a fun project. Um, and I think at this point, almost 300 video recommendations have been sent to our students based solely on the admissions that they're um, recording in Epic and the diagnoses of their patients with no human intervention. And, and we could think of a million other ways to do this, whether it's triggering assessments and evaluations, um, procedural observations, feedback, all, all sorts of other types of, of instruction and education. So this is one thing that I'm really excited about in the future. And it's great that companies like yours, we need others to follow suit, are opening up not only their content, but creating these integrations that schools like ours can take advantage of to make this really a true ecosystem. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's definitely something that Ryan and me, when we first started Osmosis, have, have been talking about for a long time. Like, could we integrate a recommendation system for professionals, for students, and even for, for consumers and patients themselves of content that could help them manage their care or manage care, uh, provide better care? And, you know, we found the right partner in you all because, again, you have 28 full-time faculty at the Innovations Institute, and your team's ability to kind of turn around this project so quickly was... Uh, yeah, I hope more medical schools can kind of follow suit with that because it's been it's been really an incredible work experience. So um, with that, I mean, Dr. Trill, I'd really like to thank you, you know, not only for taking the time to be with us uh, on the RaiseLine podcast, but more importantly, for the work that you've been doing for a while now to push the future of medical education forward and uh, and obviously the patient care that you provided. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Shiv. Great to talk to you. With that, I'm Shiv Gugwani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.